So before we start, a couple of public service announcements. Um, for those who are new with us, or maybe you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, we are in the middle of a series titled Flourish, with the subtitle, Sexuality, Gender, and the Way of Jesus. Uh, so in that, a slight content warning. If you have your kids in the room or teenagers in the room, uh, we're going to be talking about this topic both this week and the next two weeks to come as well. Uh, so all are welcome, uh, but I just figured it's fair to give you a heads up ahead of time as we talk more about maybe some more sensitive topics and issues. Also, uh, I put this up last week. This is a, a, a book article resource table. It's not the fullness of resources, but it gets you started. Some books that I have found helpful as I've read and prepared for the series. I'm not giving those away. This is not a free resource table for you to grab, uh, but this is a resource table for you to look at, maybe snap a picture of. You can flip through and read. Maybe you want to pick one up yourself. Um, I'll also post some websites and whatnot as we get toward the end of the series, but that's there. Um, I did make an offer last week for one of those particular books to be given away for free. Uh, and I don't think anyone took me up on it, so those are still there as well. One more thing before we open the scriptures. Um, as we move, we've been talking kind of big picture ideas the last few weeks, and as we move uh, toward the end of the series, I am interested in the thoughts and questions that you all have around this topic. And so um, I'm not gonna do just open Q&A, because uh, just knowing myself, I prefer to have some time to think about my answers rather than just giving you stuff on the fly. Um, so if we can go to the, the Slido slide. Um, you can use the QR code or you can go to this website. What this basically is is a place on your phone that you can go and it'll be open for the next week uh, that you can put in questions. So you can type in a question that you want answered and then also you can see everybody else's questions and you can upvote the ones that you want answered. So I can see what are actually the questions that you would be like, yeah, that would be really helpful to know. So again, on this topic of, of sexuality, gender, and the way of Jesus, uh, as we're gonna talk more practically and specifically, what are some of the questions that you, maybe you're wrestling with or that you want us to engage as a community? So again, this will be up for the next week or so. I'll put another one up next week. I'm uh, just kind of capturing what are some questions that you have. Feel free to type them in, or if you just wanna lurk on there and upvote everybody else's questions, um, feel free to do that as well too. Is that clear? You understand how that works? Okay. So with that, open up your Bibles. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 verse 15. So in this letter to the ancient church of Colossae, which is a community that was struggling, wrestling, swimming in all sorts of cultural matters, challenges, trying to discover a way forward, trying to figure out how do we do this following Jesus thing, is the answer legalism? Is the answer asceticism? Is the answer hyper-spiritualism? To that community, Paul writes this, and I would say that this passage, this section is fundamental to his letter to them, to his answers to them about how they find their way forward. Colossians 1.15, Paul writes, he, and he's referring to Jesus here, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. 
Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. So Paul, the author, is really clear and precise and pointed and, I would say, poetically beautiful, which is rare that you can be very precise and poetic at the same time. But he reminds the Colossian church, and I think he reminds us, that Jesus did not burst on the scene in the Christmas manger. And his birth to Mary... Mary and Joseph, is far from his beginning of days. Paul here proclaims that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who makes the unseen God known and seeable, knowable, touchable. And because that's who he is, according to Paul, he plays a very specific role in the story of the universe which causes Paul to use prepositions very strategically. To go to the next slide. In this section, he talks about that things are by him and through him and in him and for him. By him, through him, in him, for him. He says that all things were created by him, by Jesus. That this is Paul's claim that Jesus, again, is creator God. He's the one who has made all things, all things visible, all things invisible, flowers and trees and ladybugs, the intricacies at the cellular level, ribosomes, cytoplasm, the platypus, strawberries, all things that you can see, all things visible and all things invisible, the angelic realm, Rulers, principalities, powers, dominions. Paul says his claim is that everything in all of creation, visible and invisible, was made by him. It owes its existence to Jesus. All things were made by him. All things were made through him. All things hold together in him. The book of Hebrews says that the universe is held together by the word of his power. So the very fact that the earth keeps spinning and your heart keeps beating and the universe keeps existing, biblically speaking, is because of him. All of it is held together by him. Jesus is the glue of cosmic existence. By him, through him, in him, so that all things are for him that he is the grand end of creation. All things visible, all things invisible, the whole realm of the universe, you and me, we exist, we have breath because of Jesus, by him, through him, in him, for him. He is our reason, he is our purpose, he is the why behind every why, by him, through him, for him, in him. Are you tracking with me? Which is why then Paul brings this section to a close by making this climactic statement 
The end of verse 18, he says, so that in everything he might be preeminent. So that in, in everything, because he's covered all the ground, visible and invisible, all things made by him, through him, in him, for him, so that in everything he, Jesus, might be preeminent. Preeminent, that's quite a word. What does it mean? Go to the next slide. It's the Greek word protuon. It means to have first place. It means to have precedence. It means to have priority in time and priority in dignity. It means to be supreme over all. So Paul says, as you build the framework for your life, as you build the framework of your existence, the framework of how the world works, Paul argues, start here. Jesus is preeminent by him, through him, in him, for him are all things. And you're like, oh, that's nice, Paul. That's a good little Bible lesson. Thank you. But I thought we were having a series about sexuality and gender. Yeah, we are. And that's why I want to talk about this. Because I would argue that this truth of Colossians 1, the centrality of the preeminence of Jesus in everything, has been lost to some degree. And in some places, to a great degree. And I think that the idea of the preeminence of Jesus has been lost in the world in general, but also it has been lost in the church as well. And in our conversation around sexuality and gender in the church, not even talking about outside the church, but in our conversation around sexuality and gender in the church, the preeminence of Jesus has been lost. And so we have begun to put other things in first place. And that's what I want to talk about today. I'm not declaring a sermon to the world today. I'm talking to believers. I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to reality church. What are some of the ways in which we have put our pet ideas and our pet theologies in place of the preeminence of Jesus? It's really easy to do, and here's what happens, is we create a lot of confusion among ourselves and the world at large about what we're actually standing for and calling people to. When the, when the church starts naming other things as preeminent over Jesus, we give a confusing answer to the hope of the gospel. Today I want to talk about four things that we mistakenly put preeminent over Jesus. And this is just, again, an internal conversation. You ready? First one. We can mistakenly make marriage preeminent. We can make marriage preeminent. Now, make sure you hear me on this. Marriage is good. Marriage is a gift from God. It's part of his Genesis 1, 2 creation plan for human flourishing. It's why Jesus in Matthew 19 quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and says that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus upholds Genesis 1 and 2. Marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a sacred covenantal union between a man and a woman for a lifetime. 
Jesus argues that marriage is the only true safe place for sexual activity to happen. And anything outside of that is called sexual immorality. Marriage is good. It's a gift. It's a sacred covenantal union. And, and, marriage isn't preeminent, folks. Marriage isn't preeminent. Marriage is not permanent. Because that's what Jesus says. This is Matthew 22, verse 29. After fielding a bunch of like gotcha questions from the Sadducees, Jesus responds to this. He says, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What he's saying is there is a day that is to come when marriage will end. And the reason why all marriages will end is because the great marriage will have come between Jesus and his church. That's what is the real thing anyway, and all earthly marriages are just shadows of the real thing pointing to the day of union with Jesus and his church that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth, in the resurrection. So we must be careful how we think and talk and the messages that we send about marriage. Marriage is is important. It's valuable. It's not preeminent. Maybe I'll say this again. Marriage is not the solution to all of humanity's problems. And sometimes as Christians in the church, we talk about celibacy and singleness as second-class citizenship. As if you really want to count or matter or be godly, you have to get married. And I don't know where that is in the pages of Scripture. What if the single follower of Jesus is actually getting an advanced foretaste of what is to come for us all? Sometimes our unhelpful advice to those struggling sexually is just get married. Now maybe I can take a straw poll of the married people in the room has gotten married, has getting married solved all your sexual challenges? The honest ones are shaking their head no. Marriage doesn't fix lust. Marriage doesn't solve attraction to other people outside of your marriage. Marriage doesn't eliminate the things that maybe we think it would, but it doesn't. I've heard some people say to those who struggle with lust, well, just get married. If that's why you're getting married, um, sorry, that's not going to be helpful to you. I've heard some people say to those with same-sex attraction, well, just get married. I've heard some people say to single women especially, they've been told that the ultimate purpose of a woman is to get married and have babies. Again, a good thing. Good things made ultimate things become idolatrous things. And as much as marriage is a good thing, it's not an ultimate thing. That's the place of Jesus. I think that every single person in the world today, actually every married person in the world today in the church, needs to be reminded of Jesus' resurrection theology of marriage, that we will not be given in marriage in the resurrection because we will be married to Jesus as his bride. And so a a shriveled theology of singleness fails to recognize that single people 
following Jesus are a signpost, a window into what will be devotion to Christ, intimacy with God. Again, marriage is a different kind of window, but so is singleness, and both windows show us some truths of the age to come. Otherwise, it's a really legit question. Why would you deny anyone marriage? Why would you deny someone the preeminence of marriage? Sometimes it feels like in the church, the goal is to help people get out of their singleness as opposed to living into their singleness, faithfully following Jesus. I hope and pray for a church with a wide vision of the kingdom so that in your singleness or in your marriage, you pursue a faithful following of Jesus because he's preeminent. Just trying to say there are some cheap answers that we've given people that don't help them navigate the reality of their lives. Because it's really easy to make marriage preeminent. Also, related to this, I'm just going to name some elephants in the church today. We can mistakenly make purity culture preeminent. Now, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But some of you who grew up in church or in youth groups know exactly what I'm talking about. There was a movement in the American church in the last few decades that strongly emphasized individual purity, abstinence, and saving yourself to marriage. Now again, just for the record, I believe in purity and holiness. I believe in marriage. But what happened, there was a movement where then some churches would have purity balls or fathers would give their daughters purity rings. Teenagers would make purity pledges. And if you pick up some of the ethos of the movement, a lot of the emphasis was placed on the women and how they dressed and their sexual purity with a lot of pressure placed on women and how they handled themselves around lustful young men. Again, I think the premise of the movement was very well intended. I do agree that the marriage union is the best and safest place for sexual intercourse, God's design, and anything outside of that is sexual immorality. But here's what begins to happen. People, teens, especially young women, begin to pick up this, that the most important part of their life story is their purity, and the defining part about who they are is whether or not they've had sex before they got married. And that the biggest tragedy of their life would be that they did not wait until their wedding day before they had sex. And the messages that get attached to this are, you become defined by your sexual purity or lack thereof. And if you fail, the purity ring goes away. And the message that gets picked up is, is there is something that can get in the way of the unconditional love of God for you. What happens to the person who's no longer pure? If purity is preeminent. Where's grace? Where's the place for Jesus? What's the hope for a young man or a young woman who loses their virginity? You wonder why many young adults today want nothing to do with the church. One reason is they picked up the idea that purity culture is preeminent. And all the weight gets placed on intercourse 
and it narrows the idea of sexuality down to a very narrow, narrow sliver. There's an author, Deborah Hirsch, I have her book at the book table. She draws on the work of Marva Dawn before her. She talks about two main types of sexuality. She talks about social sexuality. You may not like these terms, some people are put off by these terms. She talks about social sexuality and genital sexuality. Social sexuality constitutes all the relationships we have, family, friends, work, colleagues, and so on, all those that make up our basic social network and friendship circles. Each relationship we have provides different levels of intimacy with different levels of intensity. Social sexuality. Genital sexuality has to do with our genital sexual connection and longing. This can range from purely physical act, if there is such a thing, to experiencing all the stuff of romance, the fluttering of the heart, arousal, and so forth. On some level, this involves a degree of nakedness, certainly physically, but also emotionally and even spiritually. And so what they note is that purity culture talks a ton about genital sexuality and never really explores social sexuality. Hookup culture makes the same mistake too, on the other end, and only wants to talk about genital sexuality and doesn't explore social sexuality. So you can miss the boat many ways, but this is happening in the church and has happened in the church. Here's what Marva Dawn, um, she writes, basically the assumption in our society is that genital sexual expression is the be all and end all of human existence and persons deserve sexual pleasure, they must have it, and no matter what, they will have it. And that to be happy, the only way to be human is to have genital sexual experiences. And she goes on, and she's talking about her own experience. She's like, you know, what I truly needed at that point was not genital experimentation, but the security and comfort of knowing experientially that someone genuinely cared about me. I needed to know that I was not alone in my pain. And in a world we have been conditioned to focus only on genital sexuality, when in reality, our needs of desire for connection and intimacy range in a whole big, diverse way, far broader and greater than just genital sexuality. I hope I'm not losing you on this. But if that's all we focus on, we miss the beauty, the depth, the breadth, Some tend to think that it's all about that one thing. And then this is where purity culture steps in. I'm just gonna run through this list. This is kind of the progression of how it gets played out. Again, I'm sorry for the translation on this. I didn't have room for the other languages on this. Deborah Hirsch says, we end up fearing sexuality because it seems too hot to handle. We find it hard to make connections between our sexuality and our spirituality, which seem to be going in opposite directions. So as a result, sexuality is viewed as a dangerous, paganizing force in our souls and in our society. So therefore, we talk about discipleship. Discipleship is therefore viewed as either asexual at best or anti-sexual at worst, requiring the suppression of all the dangerous energy it produces. And if that's the case, then no one wants to talk about it. So it all just goes underground. 
And then the resulting lack of understanding and integration of sexuality breeds fear. And then fear takes on a life of its own and it causes the systematic regulating of the feared thing in order to control the unknown monster. And then when rules are broken, which they inevitably are, the violator is judged, sometimes publicly, even ejected from the community. And rules are then reinforced, fear levels become elevated, and now outsiders need to conform to sexual purity codes in order to gain entry. And the only way you can belong in our community is are you a virgin or not? Some of you missed this part of the church, but it's there. What's preeminent? Your purity pledge or Jesus? Again, I hope we have young men and young women, old men and old women, seeking to follow the way of Jesus in holiness. But if you fail, and when you fail, may you know Jesus loves you. And we're not going to kick you out of the community. That you actually will find the same grace that we all need. Because that's what Jesus does. And that's what he's done for me. I think as parents and as a church, we need to call people to the way of Jesus without framing it in a really challenging, oppressive way. So let's keep naming some more elements. I've got two more in my time here. We can mistakenly make marriage, purity culture, or a culture war preeminent. Do you remember the scene in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus and his disciples were beginning to walk through a Samaritan village? It's Luke chapter 9. It's near the end of his ministry life. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, and on his way toward Jerusalem, he's he's not there yet, but he sends some disciples up ahead to prepare his time in this Samaritan village. Now, if you don't know, the Jews and the Samaritans had this cultural animosity where the Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds. Lots of distrust, lots of anger, lots of bitterness, and, and fighting for a long, long time. Jews and Samaritans did not get along. So Jesus and his Jewish disciples are going into Samaria, to the Samaritan village, go on ahead. When they get there, they are rejected. They are not received. They say, get out of here. We don't want you here. So in the face of that rejection, here's the brilliant plan that James and John come up with. This is Luke 9.54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, saw that they weren't welcome in the town, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So this is their strategic move. We're going into town. They don't welcome us. All right, Jesus, let's do it. Let's call down fire from heaven and we'll just burn them, consume them. After three years of walking with Jesus. Verse 55, Jesus turned and rebuked them. When a group of people are, quote, cultural enemies with a long history of disagreement and division oppose us, why would we think that our best strategy is to devour them and destroy them? 
We've been doing this for a long time, I guess, as followers of Jesus. For those who may not know or may not pay attention, we are living in a proclaimed culture war right now, where different opinions, ideologies, and worldviews are at play. And um, many in the American church right now believe that winning the culture war is preeminent, that it's the most important thing. So what does that look like? What does that sound like? Well, the most important thing is getting our values codified into law, that the most important thing is to get our own political agendas passed, that the most important thing is to get the good guys into office and the bad guys out of office, whoever the good guys and the bad guys may be, and anyone who looks, talks, acts, dresses, votes, behaves, or believes differently than we are, they are the enemy that we should call down fire from heaven upon. There's a columnist, I think she's with the Washington Post right now, Elizabeth Bruning. She says, nothing beautiful survives the culture war. And I know this begins to cross lines into civic involvement, freedom of speech, the right to protest, express ourselves. We do live in an American democracy, and I'm glad that we do, and we have those freedoms to do that. But I just want to pastorally point out that the culture war is not preeminent. Well, why, Paul? Because we can win the culture war at the expense of people. Or to put it in other terms, we could win the culture war and fail at the Great Commission. We could win the culture war and fail the Great Commandment to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So there may be and probably is a time and a place for boycotts and protests and petitions but I do become legitimately concerned when our American Christianity is more known for our boycotts than for our love. And we can mistakenly make being right preeminent, winning the argument preeminent, sticking it to them preeminent, winning the war preeminent, and lose the opportunity to engage image bearers of God. So be involved in politics, yes. Have a say in your school. For goodness sakes, talk to the school board. Be mindful of where you shop, yes. But just know that the culture war is not preeminent. In the words of the brilliant church father, St. Augustine, act as you desire so long as you act with love. If you are silent, be silent from love. If you accuse, accuse from love. If you correct, correct from love. If you spare, spare from love. Let love be rooted deep in you, and only good can grow from it. Next slide. We should never undertake the task of chiding another's sin unless cross-examining our own conscience we can assure ourselves before God that we are acting from love. If reproaches or threats or injuries voiced by the one you're calling to account have wounded your spirit, then for that person to be healed by you, you must not speak till you are healed yourself, lest you act from worldly motives to hurt and make your tongue a sinful weapon against evil, returning wrong for wrong, curse for curse. Whatever you speak out of a wounded spirit is the wrath of an avenger, not the love of an instructor." 
Mic drop, St. Augustine. <laughs> Holy cow. The wrath of an avenger when you speak out of a wounded spirit, not the love of an instructor. And we're like, I want to win the culture war. Again, there's a time and a place for us to be involved in democracy and, 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 and shopping and all those things that we need to do in our culture. But man, we've made it. Some of us have made it the most important thing. And we use our tongues out of our own wounded spirits and we're not loving people as an instructor. One last one. <laughs> we can also mistake gender roles, or maybe I should say gender stereotypes preeminent. So can I ask a loaded question? Biblically speaking, who's supposed to do the grocery shopping? Who's supposed to clean the house? Who's supposed to vacuum? Obviously the person who enjoys vacuum lines. Who's supposed to drive the car? Who's supposed to fix the car? Is it masculine to play sports? Is it feminine to like art or cook? Is the color blue for boys and pink for girls? Now again, nowadays there are a lot of things being talked about under the umbrella of gender by all people in the conversation. And there are nowadays many, many people that do not want to have the conversation around biological sex, around XX, XY chromosomes. We live in a culture where it's hard for someone to define what a woman is, who gives birth. All sorts of chatter now around hormone treatments for youth called gender-affirming care. And again, I'll go back to what we said a couple weeks ago. Jesus, Matthew 19, quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And he leans authoritatively in this conversation by talking about creation in the beginning and God's design for male and female. Jesus, I believe, affirms binary male-female biology as fundamental to God's good creation. And also in that conversation, he talks about eunuchs and he acknowledges that there are exceptions and variations due to sin in a fallen world that's worthy of love and conversation. And he does this crazy thing that I know we as Christians have a hard time doing that's called holding things in tension. And he holds together creation order and concessions designed by God and deviation through sin, biology and brokenness and he holds them together in love, and we have a really hard time with that. But, again, aiming the gender conversation in a different way toward the church, biological sex is one thing. Gender, by definition, is a social construct. Gender it's a cultural construct that varies from time to time, era to era, place to place around masculinity and femininity. And there's a range of gender expression on how you act, how you dress, how you express yourself. And history has shown that it changes over time. For goodness sake, look at our founding fathers. Do you know what they wore? <laughs> like, we need to get back to the day when men were men and wore tights and wigs and makeup. You know, when our country was founded. <laughs> right? But there are some conversations among Christians 
where we believe that biblically all women love frilly dresses and all men love to hunt and play sports and all women are crafty and handle babies and all men grunt and have no grasp of their emotions. Like I could go all day and just name gender roles, gender expectations, down to the specifics of housework and chores and hobby preferences. And maybe you have heard there's a call to return to biblical masculinity or femininity, but so much of that gets bound up in cultural assumptions. And it confuses biological realities to gendered cultural expressions. If you're a female tomboy, who likes to play sports, does that make you trans? Or if you like to cook as a guy, if you watch Broadway musicals as a man and take care of plants, does that make you gay? Or you're trapped in the wrong body? The Bible is actually less prescriptive about what a man or a woman, husband and a wife, must do or be like. I believe there are some very particular things that a man gets to be and do in God's created order, and a woman does too. I'm telling you, the great commandment is not gendered. The great commission is not gendered. The fruits of the Spirit are not gendered. And you look at the conversation in many ways. It has left people having to ask certain questions because we have put certain cultural assumptions together with biological sex in ways that I don't think the scripture necessarily says. And it leads to some really deep internal wrestling. All that to say, Jesus is preeminent. That's abundantly clear we must be very careful what we are exalting in the name of biblical gender roles and stereotypes. And I wonder how being maybe more clear in that conversation could help untangle some of the confusion and give freedom for people to figure out who they are. But as Paul says, we're by him, through him, in him, for him. For him, the the single Jewish male who never got married, never had sex, never had genital sex, while remaining perfectly faithful to his bride because he knows that one day the great marriage supper of the Lamb will come when he returns in resurrection to usher in a new heavens and a new earth where all things will be restored and all things will be in alignment with the good, beautiful truth of the kingdom of God. That's our hope. And until that day, there's a lot of of work to do, a lot of questions to wrestle through. And mistakes can be made about identity being preeminent, about sexual pleasure being preeminent, about one's internal feelings and emotions being preeminent, but also mistakes can be made about marriage is preeminent, purity culture being preeminent, winning a culture war is preeminent, adhering to our preferred gender stereotypes. 
Our call is to love and worship and serve Jesus with all that we have and all that we are, to let him have first place in our life, to let Jesus Christ, who is Lord, call the shots, to allow him to forgive our sins, to heal our wounds, to reorder our world so that we, as male and female, can be redeemed instruments of his grace that other people too may know and experience shalom, the peace that comes in the world when Jesus is preeminent. By him, through him, for him. So that in Jesus, we may experience life to the full. Let's pray. King Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, risen and exalted right now to the right hand of the Father, you are over all things, visible and invisible. Everything is subject to you. God, we thank you today for the chance to be together. And we ask, Lord, for your grace and mercy upon your church, upon our lives. For there are myriads of ways that we have taken this thing south and missed our eyes on you. So Lord, help us today fix our eyes on Jesus. And I pray for all the wounds and the places in which maybe our own story has been impacted. God, I pray for those who are wrestling with their own sexuality today, those that are struggling in lust, those that don't know what to do with their own sense of dysphoria in their own bodies. Lord, I pray that they would come to know you, follow you, submit to you as the one who is preeminent over all. So Lord, help us to keep putting you back in that place. For you alone can save, you alone forgive, you alone can heal, you alone are what we have been made for. Uh, so we are grateful that all the barriers have been removed through your life, death, and resurrection for that to be the case. So God, I pray as we keep talking and keep asking questions and keep walking through these themes, Jesus, teach us. Teach us to love. Teach us to be holy. Teach us to follow you. Teach us to receive from you the grace and healing that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name.